As you recall, we are working from Genesis through Malachi this summer. Uh, That's 16 weeks for a whole bunch of books, which means we're moving fast. And so I hope this doesn't feel, well, for those of you that remember what CDs are like, I hope this doesn't feel like a CD skipping where you miss every fourth word uh, of the book because we're going too fast. So we'll try to uh, move over the big themes of the Old Testament and try to come down uh, and camp on a few key ideas each week, uh, but also try to maintain that sort of flyover perspective where we see what God is doing in redemptive history so that we see together he was faithful, he was intentional, he had a plan at the beginning, and we see it unfold over time in hopes that we become confident, more confident, that he's at work in our lives today, the same faithful God, the same good plan that he's at work in my life and he's at work in your life. We started with Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God. It has to start there because the Bible is ultimately all about God. And so when we get that part wrong and make life all about ourselves, it's kind of like an automobile being out of alignment. You don't have to do anything. The car naturally wants to go off course, wants to go off road. It doesn't matter if the road is smooth. It doesn't matter if the road is bumpy, if it's well lit, if it's poorly lit. The natural disposition of the car is to go off road and into the ditch and so when we're out of alignment with god we're like that car just naturally drifting towards the edge of the road naturally drifting off course we stopped with in the beginning god because it's all about god Uh, and then we looked at the garden that the lord created this perfect place for adam and eve to dwell with him and there's perfect togetherness perfect Unity, And then we saw how quickly, how fragile that was, how quickly it was shattered as Adam and Eve believed a lie such that they called God's good command bad and this bad thing that God didn't want for them good. And they ate the fruit and instantly they became aware that they didn't measure up, that they were now distanced because of their sin from God. And so we walked last week from Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, and we saw that immediately the effects of sin were devastating and far-reaching, and that they multiply throughout the generations. We saw in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, and how sin just tears a family apart as Cain kills Abel. In Genesis 5 through 9, we saw that it sent a ripple effect throughout all humanity such that sin crippled their ability to be used by God and to be part of his good work and receive his blessing. And you have the flood narrative. Then in Genesis chapter 11, the people decide we will make for ourselves a great name. We're going to build a tower up to the heavens and everyone who comes and to town and sees this tower will marvel at our ingenuity will marvel at our construction ability we will make for ourselves a great name a great nation and what we see is not only is the bible all about god but he's the one who makes a great nation he's the one who gives blessing blessing is not something man procures for himself god is the giver of blessing and what we're going to see is god comes to this man abraham who many believe lived in proximity to the tower of babel and essentially says you can't get to god on your own you can't get to heaven on your own you can't make for yourself 
a great name, but I will take one from your midst, and I, says the Lord, will make a great name for myself. Uh, Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. I want to just read a couple verses from the beginning of the chapter where God calls Abraham into this covenantal relationship, where God tells Abraham the good that God is going to do in him and through him. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, so leave everything, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those, verse 3, who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the Lord comes to Abraham. By the way, in in, uh, Joshua 24, uh, we get the sense that Abraham was an idol worshiper from a family of idol worshipers. And so what what does that mean? It means that, that God initiated this great work with a massively unworthy recipient. And so that's a big thing for us to consider as we ask big questions like, who is God and how does he relate to humanity that God comes to Abraham, a massively unworthy recipient, and initiates this great work? Uh, It's significant because for many of us, we look in the mirror and all we can see are the lies that the enemy has said and we see a massively unworthy recipient staring back at us. Maybe we look in the mirror and all we see is a failed marriage. All we see is a failed career. All we see is a failed parent. All we see is a failed attempt, a repeated failed attempt to follow the Lord. And so what I just want you to hear uh, from Genesis 12 and from God selecting Abraham is that your past failures are not bigger than God's power to forgive. Your past doesn't disqualify you from the future that God wants for you. And so God comes to Abraham, this massively unworthy recipient, and says, here's all the things I'm going to do. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to fight your battles. You're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And in Genesis 15, when this agreement is reiterated, we see that the Lord is going to provide for Abraham a son, an heir of who this blessing will pass through. Now, one of the interesting things here, and there's kind of a parallel in Genesis 15, but essentially God says, I'm going to do all these great things but I am not going to uh, make it all roses. I am not going to remove all difficulty from your life. I am not going to just smooth away for you. And every day was going to be easier and better uh, than the last. Genesis 15, 13 through 16 records something very difficult that is going to happen to Abraham's people, to his descendants, And the message from God is not, I'm going to pull you out of difficulty. The message from God is, I'm going to be with you in difficulty. And you can count that I will bring about my work to completion. Not because you can get through it on your own, but because I will go with you through it and bring you out of it. Genesis 15, 13 through 16, the Lord says this. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. 
but I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, I won't quit on you or your descendants. I won't fail you. I won't fail them, even though you will repeatedly fail me. God says, I'm not going to take you out of difficulty. I'm going to be there with you in it, and I will bring you through it. I will complete my work in you, says the Lord. So what does Abraham do? Packs up everything, leaves his family, leaves his home, leaves everything that he knows and follows the Lord. Uh, and, and you might ask, how in the world is that possible? Genesis twelve six says this about Abraham. 15, 6. That's better. It says, and he believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. It says, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. The call on Abraham was to take the Lord at his words in spite of the opposition, in spite of the obstacles he saw, in spite of the difficulty that would present itself as Abraham took God at his words. I think you can't help but look around in culture and get the sense that we are moving in a direction where it will increasingly require us to take God at his words in spite of the difficulty of doing so if we are to live faithful Christian lives in our cultural context. It says by faith. It says he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so we see that Abraham's obedience was an external demonstration of the internal faith that he had. And we see that throughout scripture, that external obedience is the necessary and natural evidence of internal faith. And Abraham obeys and Abraham goes. One of the things that the Lord is so kind in doing on this journey with him where he brings about his good work in us is the Lord will point out things to us uh, that are broken. The Lord will point out things to us in our relationship with him, in our faith, in the way that we relate, we relate to him, in the way that we relate to people that are broken. And I remember that the last time we moved out of a house we had a home inspector come, and the home inspector said, one of your sump pumps is not wired correctly. Now, that home inspector had nothing against us. That home inspector was not being cruel and unusual in pointing out what was wrong and saying, fix it. The home inspector didn't have a grudge against us, didn't hate us. The home inspector was doing a really good thing. Because if there would have been an abundance of water to come down the hill and come underneath our home and the sump pump wasn't working, we would have had a very costly repair bill. So it was a very good thing that the home inspector did in pointing out the error before it became very costly. And so one of the things as we, as we consider that the Lord is faithful to complete his work in us is the sense that he is going to, with some regularity, say, you might want to check that. 
before it comes too costly. And, and so for Abraham, it is really critical that Abraham is going to follow the Lord, not just want good things from the Lord. And so God is going to ask him, Abraham, do you love me more than your family? Do you love me more than all of these good things that I've promised to do for you? Uh, turn your Bibles into to Genesis 22. God is going to ask Abraham this really significant question in a very dramatic way. Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. It says this. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Verse 2. He, the Lord, says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, you would be right in saying, wait a second, Isaac doesn't die. Wait a second, Isaac is the child of promise. Isaac is the one who God said the blessings would go to and then through his descendants. This can't be. And so I want to just pause for a second and observe some things that God doesn't do when he brings this test to Abraham. One of the things that he doesn't do is he doesn't tell Abraham where they're going. He says, just go and I'm going to show you where. He doesn't tell Abraham that it's a test. He doesn't say, okay, Abraham, pay attention. I'm going to ask you these questions. Then it's going to be some multiple choice. Then there's going to be some essay questions. Uh, after this, we'll be done. It's, it's not like a roller coaster. Uh, you hang on for two and a half minutes and then the ride's over. He doesn't tell them it's a test. He doesn't tell them the duration of the test. He doesn't tell them the purpose or the intended outcome of the test. He doesn't say, Abraham, I'm going to ask you to do these things, but then at the last moment, I'm going to kind of stop uh, so that, Abraham, you will become more convinced that I am your provider, that I am faithful, that I can rescue you in any situation you find yourself in, that I am even greater than the covenantal benefits that I have promised you. God doesn't explain all that to Abraham. His test just comes through an inexplicable command to do something that makes no sense whatsoever. Some of you are there right now. Something in life makes no sense whatsoever. It feels like the undoing of all the good that you've done or all the good that you've hoped for or all the good that you've seen God do. Abraham is right there. It's inexplicable. What does Abraham do? So Abraham rose early in the morning, verse 3, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went off to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come to you again. Notice what Abraham doesn't do. Abraham doesn't debate with God. God, this doesn't make any sense. Why would you ask me to do this? What's really going on, God? Come on, tell me the truth. Abraham doesn't delay. He doesn't say, all right, fine, God, and then wait three days and then go off. He gets up early the next morning and goes and prepares to do exactly what God has asked him to do. And some of you know how the story ends. Abraham is up on the mountain. He is prepared to follow through with the sacrifice of his son, when the Lord interrupts him and says, Abraham, don't you touch him. There's a ram over there in the bushes. Use that 
the Lord says, now I know that you love me. Now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you trust me. And reiterates his promise, reiterates his covenant to Abraham. And what has Abraham now revealed to us, to the readers, thousands of years ago? We see his faith through his obedience, that he took God at his word, even when it didn't make sense, that he said, God, you are better than all of the covenantal benefits that you have promised. And if what I see with my eyes doesn't match with what you've said, I realize the issue is my eyesight, not your words. And Abraham obeys to the very end, and he puts a flag in the ground and and calls the place. This is the place where the Lord provided. Some of us are just begging the Lord to provide in a significant way right now. And it's fascinating to me that that banner goes into the ground. He names that place after taking step after step, a multiple-day journey, step after step in ambiguity, step after step in confusion, Step after step in doubt, what could God possibly be doing? And at the end of that journey is a rock-solid resolve that God is faithful, that God is his provider, that God is greater than the benefits that he promises. One of the questions that sort of is begged in the text from Genesis 12 through Genesis 50, the rest of the book of Genesis, is... Is God involved with our lives? Does he have his hands on our lives? Is he involved in the details? Or is he like this uh, latchkey parent with latchkey kids where where he goes off to work and the kids just kind of do whatever they want? Is he actually involved in our lives? Many of you at the end of each Sunday put prayer cards in the offering bags, and many of those prayer cards are prayers for loved ones, people special, people near and dear to you, who in some way or shape or form have made a mess of something at just a tragic level. So we've got to ask ourselves, is God involved with the details of that person's life? Is God involved with those messy, difficult, and even destructive decisions? Is he there? Does he have power over them, or is he helpless? Is he involved? Does he know what's going on or is he distant? From Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, there are going to be just episode after episode where it appears like God's covenant, God's promise to Abraham is under attack, mostly because of the sin of God's people. One of those occasions is the end of Genesis. Uh, If you have your Bibles, Turn with me to Genesis 45. It's a story about a guy named Joseph. You have Abraham, then you have Isaac, then you have Jacob. Jacob is definitely not a candidate for father of the year. In fact, on Father's Day, he probably gets no phone calls. Uh, Jacob shows special favoritism to his two youngest sons. Dads, that will not get you anywhere and will create very expensive counseling bills later in life. Joseph is kind of doomed from the beginning. His dad shows him as the clear favorite to his ten older brothers. On top of that, God gives Joseph a couple dreams, one of which has his brothers essentially bowing down to him. So for those of you that are older siblings, you can imagine how much fun it would be to hear your younger uh, sibling say, you know, one day that you're going to bow down to me. 
God said it, not me. I'll take it up with him. One day I'm going to run the business and, and you're going to work for me. But it's okay, I'll let you mow the lawn. You can imagine how that went. And so his family, his brothers, uh, his siblings get uh, fed up with him. And some of you know that they essentially sell him to traveling merchants who are headed to Egypt. And so this peculiar thing happens where Joseph has a clear conviction that God has a special plan for his life. God has a purpose for him to fulfill. And it's a rather significant thing that the Lord has called him to. And yet... His circumstances, the things going on around him, absolutely unravel, going from bad to worse, and then from bad to worse. And if there's something beyond worse, it goes there too. First, he's sold as a slave to these traveling merchants. They go down to Egypt. They sell him into the house of a guy named Potiphar, who is the captain of Pharaoh's uh, bodyguard. Joseph does nothing wrong, at least that's recorded in Scripture. He tries to honor the Lord at every step of the way. The Scripture even says that the Lord was with Joseph. And so Joseph is doing the best that he can. Joseph's nose is clean. He's honoring the Lord. God is with him. And even though God is with him and Joseph appears to be on the straight and narrow, Joseph is sent to prison for something he didn't do. He is unfairly targeted. He is Uh, unfairly lied about he is unfairly sentenced and he goes to jail now wouldn't you know it in jail a couple of pharaoh's servants come and they have been uh, sent there by pharaoh and while in prison they have dreams wouldn't you know god gives joseph the interpretation of those dreams wouldn't you know exactly what god told joseph to tell them happens to the t Joseph's last words to those two guys, don't forget me. Don't forget me. What do they do? Text says two years go by. They forget him. Pharaoh has a dream, and one of the servants, servants, the one that actually lived, the one who was pardoned, the servant leans over to Pharaoh and says, hey, I know a guy. And it's, it's kind of comical how the dialogue goes because the servant essentially says... I don't want to bring this up, but a while back, you might have been unhappy with me and you might have thrown me into jail. But while there, I met a guy. And so Pharaoh says, bring him to me. Uh, In Genesis 46, we see Pharaoh face to face with Joseph. Pharaoh essentially says, all right, tell me. Tell me about my dream. And I will as soon as I get there. This was Joseph's answer to Pharaoh. Right? This is Joseph's big break, right? He's been a slave for a long time. He's been in prison for a long time. Things have gone against him for a long time. He gets his big break. He's in the court with Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I hear you can interpret dreams. Do it. Verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. But God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so it's just fascinating that that Joseph's life has taken all of these twists and turns, all of these undesirable twists and turns, and he has not abandoned the Lord, even though his family, even though everyone he knows has abandoned him. He has not stopped to follow Yahweh, even though you wouldn't blame him for looking around and saying, it kind of doesn't seem Yahweh, like you're doing.
doing anything. It kind of doesn't seem like you're paying attention. Because if you were, this isn't a good plan. Joseph stays ready in the midst of the horrific circumstances. And so if you're someone who this morning maybe feels like, I can relate to sitting in prison for two years, feeling forgotten about, feeling like, why God, why? Feeling like, hey God, remember me, Nathan? You know, like we we used to talk, and now I'm talking and no one's listening. Many of you have been there, and I would say if you're there right now, stay ready. Saturate yourself with the word of God. Stay ready. Surround yourself with like-minded people. Stay ready. Because God is going to call Joseph out of prison, bring him into the court of Pharaoh. He's going to interpret Pharaoh's dream, and Pharaoh is going to make him second in command of all of Egypt. It's amazing how when God moves, things can go from really, really, really bad to really, really, really good for his purposes literally overnight, literally in an instant. And so some of you know how the story goes. Joseph tells Pharaoh, there's going to be seven fat years. Everything is going to grow. The soil is just going to produce a thousandfold. But then after that, there's going to be seven lean years. So Joseph says, store up now so that we'll have food for the seven lean years. And the text says that Pharaoh could see the hand of the Lord upon Joseph. And so he promotes Joseph to number two in command to oversee all of his kingdom just under Pharaoh. And wouldn't you know it, who comes to buy food? Joseph's brothers. They come once. He provides them with food. He kind of has a little fun with them, and you can't blame him for that, I don't think. He has a little fun with them, sends them on their way. Uh, They come back down a second time, and Joseph reveals to them his identity. He does that in Genesis 45, and then he repeats it in Genesis 50, um, verse 20. Let me read that verse to you. Rather than recounting all of the things he endured unjustly, rather than recounting all of the things that they did wrong, He says it in Genesis 45. He says, in everything that you did, God was there. God was involved. God had power over it. And then he says a second thing. He says, and God has leveraged all of it for good. And then he says it more concisely in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Did Joseph have any idea what God was going to do? Did he have the slightest clue why he would be in Egypt, why he would be in the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard's home, why he would be in prison, why he would be forgotten there much longer than he wanted to be? Not the slightest clue. Was God at work in all of those details? Did God have power over everything that seemingly had power over Joseph? Everyone who seemingly had power over Joseph? Was Pharaoh's 
bodyguard, captain of his bodyguard, just a pawn in God's plans? Yes. Was Pharaoh himself just a pawn in God's plans? Yes. As we wrap up, I want to finish with uh, Galatians 3. We're going to see all throughout the Old Testament, and and we see in Genesis 12 through 50, uh, God makes a covenant to make a great people who will make a name for him, who will worship him. He will be their God. He will dwell with his people. And over and over and over, his people are going to present over and over and over. We're going to be reminded that they are unworthy recipients of his presence and of his promises. And we're going to see blunder after blunder after blunder. We're going to see that if the covenant were dependent upon them, it would never have come to fruition. If the good God planned for his people was contingent upon them responding the right way every time, it would never come to fruition. But the Lord himself brings it to be. And so as we, as we look at the New Testament, and one of the things I hope that we can do each week uh, this summer is to really uh, tie together the work and the faithfulness of God in the Old Testament with how it is made clear and even highlighted and accentuated in the New Testament. And so what we understand is that God told Abraham back in Genesis 12 and again in Genesis 15 and elsewhere that through him all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. We understand that part of what the Lord meant when he said all the nations of the earth would be blessed would be fulfilled when Jesus came lived, died, and rose again, and the gospel, the good news, goes to the Gentiles such that all who have faith, all who are part of the family of God, are part of who God was referencing when he said that Abraham and his descendants would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Uh, From Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Uh, Jesus did that. It was him. Uh, it wasn't us. It wasn't our merit. It uh, wasn't our strength. wasn't our ability to white-knuckle it. Jesus did that. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you see the intentionality of God, the plan of the Lord to bless all the nations of the earth and to do it through his chosen means, through his chosen people, in spite of their unworthiness. Their worthiness was never the point. It was always his worthiness. Their strength was never the point. It was always his strength to initiate his good work and to bring it to completion. Pick back up verses 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to the promise. Paul says it doesn't matter where you came from. 
It doesn't matter how you were judged by society. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic box you were born into or rose or fell into. It doesn't matter your ethnic background. It doesn't matter your economic class. Paul says it's not your past that defines you. He says if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. It's his work that defines us. It's his work that he brings to fruition that matters, not where we came from. He said where we came from, we were all divided and we were all in groups and we were all in opposition. When we follow Christ, we're unified in him. We're all called sons and daughters of the king. And and so as we look back uh, on the book of Genesis and we see the Uh, unworthiness of God's people and his worthiness. We see their blunders and his perfect faithfulness. We see their weakness and his power. We see they disrupt the blessing and he is a generous giver of blessing. We see their faithlessness, his faithfulness. Hopefully it causes us to pause and to go, we serve a God who is intimately involved in the details of our life. And we serve a God who is perfectly faithful in spite of our, at times, faithlessness. So it changes our posture towards him. We can bring our circumstances to him, right? We don't have to drive the car. We can let him drive the car. If he's driving, if we trust that he's in our circumstances, it means we are never outmatched. We are never outgunned. We are never at a disadvantage. We always have hope. There's We never need to truly despair. If you're here this morning and you're in that spot with your circumstances, would you trust the Lord with your circumstances? Would you trust the Lord that he's with you in them? That he's even perhaps keeping more uh, from you out of his grace and his mercy? That he's doing something good? That maybe even what was meant for evil against you the Lord will leverage for good. Would you give him your circumstances this morning? We're going to have a prayer team up on each side. And as the worship team leads us in a closing song and we receive this morning's offering, you can put your prayer cards into those offering bags so you can respond in prayer that way. You can come up during the last song, after the last song, and, and just ask someone to pray with you. Help me give these circumstances. Help me give this relationship. Help me to give this thing up to the Lord. I've been clinging to it for way too long. Some of you realize this morning, maybe for the first time, that you are outside the promise of God. You are outside the family of God. You are not part of the promise that is described in Genesis 12. If that's you today, I would say the Lord is worthy of your life. He can take it. He is a much better driver than you are. Would you give him control? If you're not sure what that means, we'd love to explain what that means to you and we'd be happy to do it down here uh, after the service. The same God who is faithful to Abraham and as you read Genesis 12 through 50 on your own and you see blunder after blunder, that same God is faithful to you, is faithful to me today, forever, and always. Let's pray. Lord, we confess we are 
quick to point the finger and blame you for what's wrong and slow to recognize that you're at work in the midst of our circumstances. And so we confess that we do not give you the credit that you deserve. And that is our issue, not your issue. So we ask forgiveness together, Lord, and we ask for faith to believe. Lord, we give you our circumstances this morning, entrusting them to your care so that we can live free, confident in your love for us, confident in your power over our circumstances, confident that you will bring the work to completion that you are doing in us. Lord, that our job is to follow. Lord, help us to follow you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.